0: You must be William. Welcome to Westworld. Yes. Given
1: it's your first visit, I have a few personal questions. Welcome to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the television that we're obsessing over. Right now, we're watching Westworld. I'm your host, Annalee Newitz, Ars Technica's tech culture editor. In this episode, we'll be tackling episode two of Westworld, called Chestnut. And joining me for this episode is Jennifer Hahn, Ars Technica's video editor and also documentary filmmaker. Jennifer has done us a great service by re-watching the original Westworld film from the early 70s, as well as its sequel, Future World, which came out later in the 70s, and the 1980 short-lived, ill-fated TV series of Westworld and she's going to talk to us about those and how they may or may not fit into the current Westworld series. So, let's get started. All right, thanks for joining me on
0: the show, Jen. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Let's get started just by talking about the episode and then we'll kind of get into a bunch of other topics that I know both of us want to talk about. So, In this episode, we actually see a new part of the park that we haven't seen before. When we meet William, who is our white hat gamer, We see the train station. What do you think is going on here? Do you agree with the conspiracy idea that maybe this is on another planet? Or what is this place? Well,
0: I still think it's a a theme park. They've cordoned off some kind of large, expansive space in the middle of the desert for this. And you could see the facility is, uh, later on in the episode, it's like built it inside into the cliff. I don't know if there's a conspiracy. I I wasn't actually thinking they were on another planet. I just thought it was some theme park such as, a la Jurassic Park on an island or somewhere in the Midwest in the future where they've taken, you know, the desert and made it into a theme park.
1: Yeah. I kept wondering um, if it was underground. When we see them coming in, it really looks like the train is taking them somewhere underground. And then it made me wonder if all of Westworld is is underground and what we're seeing is kind of a fake sky overhead. Could
0: be. Could be under the dome could be (laughs) (laughs) i mean
1: if you've been to disneyland there's some amazing rides where they recreate a sky that feels really sky like you know it really is not um hard to believe that you could do something on that scale in the future so how does this work is there a orientation no orientation no guidebook Figuring out how it works is half the fun. What did you think of William? I mean, I feel like he's going to be one of our protagonists from now on. And he he goes to the sorting hat room and he picks
0: the <laughs> white hat. Um, do you believe that? Do you think he's a good guy or where do you think he's going? I don't think he knows what he is yet. I think he has probably some something inside. There's a reason why he's there, right? I mean, he, he seems like the nice guy. He seems to be resisting his friends' naughty ways. But what got him there something has gotten him there if i'm not your type we can find someone who is someone who's perfect for you no you you are perfect but i have somebody somebody real waiting for me at home
1: right (laughs) the guy he's with is his future brother-in-law and so the person he has at home is that guy's sister. Okay. <laughs> so that makes it a little bit creepy. So then um, the other thing that was, well, there's a couple of other things that were super interesting in this episode, but we learned a lot more about the man in black and his quest for the maze. Motherfucker. Well, that's the best thanks you can muster, Lawrence. It used to be a little more eloquent. Do I, do I know you? Your pal Kissy sent me your way. He sort of rescues this guy Lawrence in the most violent possible way and then says, by the way, I have your friend's scalp, which has a maze drawn on it. Uh, and he's convinced that Lawrence knows something about the maze.
0: Well, I was fascinated as to like, how did he know that it was under uh, Kissy's scalp? Like how did what he scalped him? And I, from the memories that we see later from Maeve, uh, and that she was nearly scalped, maybe she was actually ended up being scalped by the Man in Black. We have to find out something in the middle, how he even knew to scalp him to find that, maybe completely cut him up into pieces until he found that. But that scalping is, uh, seems to be a an interesting detail, make a connection between Mave's dreams and the scalping. Because he's been doing this for 30 years, so he says. He knows Dolores from the beginning. He knows all of them from when they were, from the way back. He's been going there for 30 years. And it's taken him this long to find a scalp with a maze printed on it. But we find out from Lawrence's daughter that the maze isn't meant for him. The maze isn't meant for you.
1: But I tell you, Lawrence? Always another level.
0: He says this
1: weird thing later about how he's not going back this time. And that's somehow
0: tied into his quest for the maze as well. Right. He's not giving up. He's going to keep paying for his stay yeah. until he finds this maze. There's a little tiny interlude there where he's murdered entire groups of people. And uh, one of the texts questions this to the head of, what is he, security? Yeah, uh, the head of security. And he's like, "Nope. Let him let him do whatever he wants." But if the maze isn't meant for him, then who is it meant for? They want to give him everything except that one thing. But maybe that's part of the game. They're planting something in there that they want him to keep paying and keep coming back, but it's it's a what, a red herring, but it's leading him into this place where to find something more about himself, like Ford alludes to later in the in the episode.
1: Yeah, there's that great moment toward the end where we see, kind of, it's like an argument about storytelling or an argument about game design between Ford, who created the park, and Lee, who is the annoying head of narrative. I love that scene where Lee finally presents to the entire company his new narrative, which is called... Odyssey on Red River (laughs) featuring self cannibalism and, um, you know, Indian sidekicks who tragically die. Lots of Indian stereotypes, um, (laughs) which I thought was funny because we see this very stereotypy narrative about Indians actually throughout this episode. And the people who are visiting the park are we we meet a lot of white people, but there's it's a pretty ethnically diverse group of people who are visiting the park. And I kept wanting to find out at some point if any Native Americans are going to come visit the park mm-hmm. and how their response is going to be or like what the Native American robots think about always having to be in these roles of the sidekicks that die or the savages that, mm-hmm. that cut off people's scalps. So I hope that that gets developed. And of course, Ford thinks that Lee's narrative is just terrible. He's mm-hmm. just totally disgusted by it.
0: Yeah, for it is all about the guests learning about themselves and not about what he thinks he knows, what the guests want.
1: The guests don't return for the obvious things we
0: do, the garish things. They come back because of the subtleties, the details. They're not looking for a story that tells them who they are. They already know who they are. And hes it's been that way for forever. We see in, in Maeve's flashbacks, her weird nightmares, there were those Indians scalping people, like you said. And yeah. Th- it's been going on like this forever. He thinks this is what people want and why they are coming back. And he, uh, Ford seems to know better.
1: I mean, that's, and Ford thinks that what people really want is to see a better version of themselves. And we start to see, and he says, you know, I have a new narrative too, which he is sort of secretly developing, which I think is... We're starting to see the beginning of that narrative with this. It's like a buried church or something. Yeah.
0: I was trying to find that in the old, the original film, if there was some kind of allusion to a church. That wasn't a reveal from the old Westworld. So I'm I'm very curious. And especially that boy, that robot boy, really was like, what? (laughs) I (laughs) I thought he was just a kid that wandered away from his family because he said he was bored. And then he ordered the boy just like he ordered the rattlesnake. And uh, so when you say about Ford learning about oneself, the, the boy's accent and Ford's accent sort of made me think that this boy is possibly Ford trying to discover something about himself from when he was a boy.
1: Nowherland.
0: That seems hardly a fitting name for a place so full. Can't you see it? Perhaps you're not looking hard enough. At what? The town with the white church.
1: I totally agree. That was completely what I got out of it too. Right. I think, um, and I think that leads to, kind of, how creepy Ford is. I think that's a super creepy thing to do. And yet, at the same time, I think his interpretation of why people come to the park. And what they want out of the robots, the idea that they want to know who they could be. It's actually a very utopian idea of what people get out of stories. He says people want subtlety. And, um, you know, Lee is saying people just want to, like, kill and self-cannibalize. And so it's interesting that Ford is such a creep But at the same time, he has this kind of elevated idea of what people want. So before we get into talking about the previous Westworld movie, I wanted to just spend like a second talking about this amazing scene where Elsie, who is the head programmer who works under Bernard, she's debugging Maeve. And I love the details of how that works. We see Elsie wearing uh, glasses that she's using to um, see the code that's running on Maeve. And we kind of see the code like scrolling up her glasses. Mm. It's just so, and she's talking about how they program the robots to have the concept of dreams and nightmares. And she kind of gets back to a lot of the themes developed in the first episode about memory and how horrific it would be if these robots could actually remember what had happened to them. At the same time, we get this glimpse of how the programmers think about creating personalities and, you know, what's the ideal personality of a sex worker? Mm -hmm. And there's this debate, like some of the groups, obviously in QA, think it should just be a really aggressive woman. And Elsie thinks that she should have emotional acuity. And so she retunes Maeve to be uh, more emotional to do her sex work.
0: Yeah. She talks about having, she's got so much aggression and she, she's, and it's because of, she says, those morons in narrative, you know, they've given <laughs> yeah. her all of this, this aggression. It's, but she calls them morons. And like from that scene, I got that Elsie was actually misunderstanding the concept of how the robots are interpreting these dreams. Cause she's calling the guys in narrative morons. Yeah. And she's saying that they don't actually dream. They have the concept of dreaming. They have a concept of nightmares. But as we see when Maeve, our Tandy Newton bot, she does dream. And she is being affected by this and sort of shutting herself down in the middle of scenes. These do actually to us as humans seem like dreams and they are affecting her and changing her behavior slightly. To me, that is maybe a misunderstanding on the part of the engineers that the morons in narrative, they're actually assisting in the evolution of these robots by giving them experiences and they're remembering their programming is seeping in from their past learning. And that's how Ford designed them initially. He designed them to be learning and and of course Bernard as well. If they've given the concept of dreaming, then they're going to dream and change because of the narratives they've been assigned. So I don't know, yeah. that's a big misunderstanding maybe in the part of the engineers that they're just she's she's souping up the aggression in like didn't she raise the level of aggression or something? That's or? what the
1: narrative the narrative QA people they raise her aggression right. by 20% or something yeah. like that so uh, it's like
0: do they really know what they're doing because they think it's just programming on the screen but they are I'm assuming they're going to see the effects of that in the future
1: I mean Maeve is literally having reveries, uh, yeah. waking dreams and that's the other thing that was really great in this episode is we see Dolores passing this kind of intellectual virus to Maeve in the street when she says to her "These mm-hmm. violent, delights." A violent ends. <gasps> and then at that moment, Maeve begins to have the same kinds of violent memories that Dolores has been having throughout the episode.
0: Exactly. So, yep.
1: so let's talk about, you've been re-watching the oh. previous Westworld film, Future World, and did you also watch <sighs> the previous series?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I try... Okay, yeah. It's not the greatest film uh, as far as shooting or directing or even acting, but the concept is very cool i mean when i i grew up in the 70s and i was just this was like wow <laughs> you know this is a very wow kind of a a film when that was out like all the other films that came out around the, that time the science fiction was going very dystopian in the 70s and yeah you know why well it's, it's pretty obvious it was you know the vietnam war had been going on. There's a lot of dissent and anger in the world. The um, what we're still seeing today about the, the top one percent versus the rest of us, the nuclear war threat, the Cold War. What was it? Fritz Lang's Metropolis <laughs> had been looking like this since 1927, right? Yeah. So it it's it just has been becoming more sophisticated as time went on. So that timing. Of the book Westworld. Michael
1: Crichton wrote the screenplay for Westworld, right. and, um, which actually, uh, he also wrote Jurassic Park, um, which deals with a lot of the same themes. So he was obviously obsessed with this idea of a really screwed up amusement park in the future. Right. And so do you see any themes from the original Westworld kind of cropping up? We, we have had some Easter eggs, kind of references to the original film. But yeah. Do you, do you see any other connections, well, really?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, in this particular episode, there were tons. The, uh, the two men coming in, William and his, uh, his friend, brother-in-law, that actually was the plot initially in the original Westworld. The guys didn't know each other, but the main characters in the original Westworld were the two men that came in uh, initially on the train. On the Uh very futuristic train. Yeah. (laughs) It was very futuristic (laughs) back then. And they got to know one of them had been experienced. The other one was not experienced. He was a bit shy and tentative about doing nasty things. So he would be considered a white hat just like William. But later in the story in Westworld, I'm not giving him any spoilers. The film has been out for a very very long time now yeah sorry uh, if you missed it sorry if you missed it but the mid-20th century has happened (laughs) come and gone (laughs) yeah but the basically what happens in in the original Westworld is that there's a glitch in the system which we're being shown that there are glitches happening in the system there's strange things happening with the robots and this is what happened and set the park into chaos in the film We end up with one guy left uh, at the end, one human left against the gunslinger, which in this one, there is a reference to the gunslinger, which is the man in black. However, it's the opposite. He's not a robot. He's a human in this version. So it's a very yeah, so, interesting change.
1: Yeah. So in the original film, um, Yul Brynner plays the robot gunslinger. So he's got a lot of gravitas and has it uh, would have been known at the time to audiences as a guy who was in a bunch of westerns. So it was very cool to see him playing a robot. He's not really evil in no. the original Westworld film. He's he's kind of like the robots in in the series that he's. He's been horribly abused. He's been shot over and over by guests. And it's almost like he's just like, this is enough. Like, I'm not, I don't want to be shot anymore.
0: Right. And it's also, there's the reference uh, with Ford uh, when there's a livestock alert and they go down to cold storage and uh, Ford is sitting there talking to one of the old Westworld robots one of the originals yeah. that happened way back when you can tell he was an old one because though you can't tell who's a robot and who isn't in this series in the modern version of Westworld, you can tell by their hands uh they have these flat no fingerprinted hands and that's what this this cowboy that ford was talking to has those oh. hands he has the the weird hands he's he's moving a little bit oddly you know he was moving yeah, a like a robot jerky. yeah jerky movement well he's old but he's also as for described they they weren't as fluid they weren't as sophisticated as they are now back then the robots themselves they didn't evolve as they are evolving in this one when i watched the gunslinger He was following his programming. He was a black hat and he was not a white hat. And he was kept just following his programming. He was there to try to kill. And when all of the stops were, they all failed. Computers just fell offline. They lost control. They just kept doing what their programming was telling them to do. I don't know. It's it's, uh, a level of sophistication that has changed over time. And maybe it's a level of sophistication because our audience has changed over time. The audience wants to see humanity side robots aren't the enemy anymore we're not afraid of technology anymore we're not afraid of robots anymore looking at it from the robots point of view works so well this day and age because back then nobody had a computer on their desk you know nobody knew anything about the most they had was a calculator which cost 150 dollars you know they thought robots were going to take over the world the 1950s and 60s all the movies that had robots in them the robots were evil or they turned evil or something you know they were used for Bad things, for the most part. The That's change. really
1: interesting. Yeah. So, so now, I guess the character who is most like the gunslinger is kind, is Teddy, basically, because his job is to be mm-hmm. killed all the time.
0: Yeah, he doesn't really evolve, Teddy. Uh, he's probably the only robot that doesn't seem to be evolving very much. And um, I don't I don't know why that is. The other ones, are, I think the bad guys are evolving a lot quicker. What you were saying made me think about if if the man in black uh,
1: in, the current, in the current series is kind of a reference to the gunslinger, I wonder if... Um, well, there's two things I'm wondering. One, a lot of people, of course, on the internet are claiming that maybe uh, the man in black is a robot, which I, I don't really think that's true. Or if it turns out to be true, I think it'll be way more complicated. Hmm. But I do think that there's a strong element of this series that is about how humans are programmed, how we're programmed by our culture, Mm -hmm. how we're programmed by games and imagery and entertainment to want certain things. Mm -hmm. And so it makes me wonder if maybe one of the things that's evil about the man in black is that he's let himself be so programmed by this game, by this Mm -hmm. immersive narrative and has become almost a robot. In in fact, maybe he's not you know, he's not evolving into a different kind of person. He's just becoming more and more invested in this narrative, which is a
0: terrible narrative written by Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) That is very interesting. The reverse evolution or devolving uh, of the humans and the evolution of robots. There was a very interesting thing on Reddit and it's a good place to go for, for your theories. And one of them that stuck out for me, which also came to me from watching future world was a quote that somebody put on that actually the producer of the show uh, had commented on this uh, it was way before the show started the quote was i'm not scared of a computer passing the turing test i'm terrified of one that intentionally fails it that made me think of future world and and what that plot was about tell us the plot of future world i have not i have not yeah. seen future world so so future world as we as we know there were Two other worlds that you could go to. When you went to Delos, which was the company who ran the theme park, it's called Delos, they had two other worlds in uh, uh, medieval world and Roman world. They were actually a part, a big part of the film where actually the, the robots st- started falling apart and killing people actually in medieval world, <laughs> which was, uh, you know, somebody got ran up with a sword uh, by a black knight who was like the gunslinger in uh, Westworld. Mm-hmm. Uh, So there was this whole other portion of the park, which I'm hoping maybe in the future episodes, maybe in future seasons, we can see different portions of the park, if there are any.
1: Medieval world will basically be Game of Thrones. Right, right. We
0: already have medieval world. (laughs) Yeah. With dragons. There's dragons. So future world picks up three years later, technically three years later, 1976, and we actually see... The same entrance way. We didn't see it so much in the original Westworld, but the sort of mall atmosphere that you see coming into the Westworld, you actually see this more in Future World. And because Westworld was such a disaster and everybody died, they redid the theme park. They kept Medieval World but they added sort of a, like a spa world or some kind of sensual world where everybody's just, it's a, it's a world of delights. And then there's future world, world, which, yeah, it's very, I, I forget what the name of it was. It was very, just, I, you know, I, feel I good go world. Spa world. Yeah. <laughs> it seems pretty cool. And then there's future world is actually you, you go on a spaceship and it's sort of a, an experience that you're blasting off in a, in a spaceship and zero gravity and, and things like that. But future world, totally ignored the theme parks. After the initial, the theme parks don't even, (laughs) they don't even play a part in the film anymore. What Future World is about is they reopen the park and they invite all these dignitaries from other countries all around the world and reporters to tell the world that they're really fantastic and it's safe because of what happened to Westworld. Well, what it really is, is that the reporters get really, really curious and they want to go backstage and they want to find out what's going on and how everything's being run but they don't want to show them which in normal press that's pretty much how it is you, you get to see a little bit but you don't get to see how everything is done but Peter Fonda wants to really really know what's going on it's a bit ridiculous and he keeps sneaking backstage and he finds more and more and what they realize is that not only is everything being run by robots, all of the, the head of engineering, the head, the CEO of Delos or the operations manager, they are all robots who have designed the uh-huh. robots. Not only that, but they are actually kidnapping people in the middle of the night, humans, cloning their look and their dreams and putting them into clone robots so that they can send them back into the world and replace them. So it's so like it's pod robots people. Robots
1: taking over the world through the theme park by yes. like tempting people to come to this theme park and then replacing them with the pod people. That's yeah. kind of amazing. Also, Peter yeah. Fonda, that's kind yeah. of great. Yeah. And so, and of course, it's it's a film that comes out after Watergate. So it's just full yeah. of crazy conspiracies, right. uh, which is one of the things I love about late 70s sci fi in, in right. the United States. One of the things that. Is interesting is that that plot of replacing important people with robot clones, I wonder if that's going to come up or some version of that will come up in the Westworld series because we've already yeah. had hints from Teresa, who's head of ops, that there's this other thing going on in the park. There's this other, that the investors are interested in this other use that has nothing to do with entertainment. right. This place is one
0: thing to the guests, another thing to the shareholders, and Something completely different to management. So enlighten me. What do you think management's real interests are? <sighs> smart enough to guess there's a bigger picture, but not smart enough to see what it is.
1: And the man in black character, his kind of weird status as, is he a human? Is he a kind of a semi-robot? Maybe he's part of that. Maybe he's like half of a, maybe he's a clone or... I don't know. Or a I, test I, subject.
0: He Maybe he's the test subject to see what's going to happen with how far these robots can go. Tester? Yeah, he's the Not beta the...
1: test or yeah. alpha tester or something yeah. like that. But it, I love the idea of robots taking over the world through mm-hmm. entertainment because it's, so, it's such a non-stereotypical idea of robot uprising. The usual robot right. uprising is just it's Terminator, just straight up nukes crushing skulls under metal feet, you know, the whole fire upon the earth scenario. And then I love the idea that it's like,
0: no, no, Mm -hmm. we'll just, Lure you in, <laughs> yeah, with games and that's why they started with. Replace you. That's why they started with the dignitaries, you know, these heads yeah. of state and stuff, and they wanted to, and the reporters, so that they would report what they wanted them to report. And then, of course, the Beyond Westworld was right. created. Is it, was it a mini series or? a Yeah, series? I think it was post. They wanted it to be a series, but only three were aired, and they made five total. Wow. There were two unair. <laughs> in 1980, same year as Battlestar Galactica. Right. nineteen eighty.
1: another. Right great well,
0: moment in television. <laughs> so this could have been, you know, something even better than that, but they um they tried to make it like a police procedural. So what happened was they took the future world concept of robots taking over and they made the bad guy who I think Ford represents the man who programmed the original robots. He was uh-huh. so pissed off that they used these robots to be playthings and a little game, he wanted them to be in nuclear submarines and you know, this is where the Cold War thing just oh, goes crazy and he wanted them in as heads of the state and to be to create some sort of order but also make a lot of money for himself by you know being a criminal so they bring in an old the old security the guy who designed the old security and then left west world before it came became like you know a complete mess dilos the company brings him in to track this guy down and track all the robots down that he's inserted into society so it, it becomes this procedural of every time they discover another robot that possibly in this area of the world uh they fly this guy out and he has to take down the robot and figure out the plot that this evil quade his name is quade the, the big baddie it was overly confusing overly complex and the whole thing about being a police procedural just did not work at all it was the drama was it was just so bad <laughs> but unfortunately do- but the concept was yeah. very very cool and i it, it's it's a shame that it didn't uh, get a better treatment yeah it's
1: also I think you're right to to highlight the part about the Ford-like character who wants the robots to be used for something better or more important, because I do think that is happening in, in this Westworld series. I think that's definitely one of Ford's motivations, is that he thinks these robots are something that could be used for a lot more than just raping and pillaging that they, that they could elevate us in some way and that they're part of, uh, humanity's, uh, evolution. Although of course he also makes a lot of very pretentious comments about how evolution is over uh which seems <laughs> yeah, weird it's their the end
0: they've finished evolving so they have to put themselves into this robot world which is again the, that little boy i'm thinking maybe he's trying to evolve a new version of himself through this boy and his yeah. own experiences
1: that's a really yeah i think uh, i definitely think that Ford's psychology is is going to become more and more important especially as we learn more about this weird storyline that he's unfolding with the Buried Church. Before we go, I wanted to, because I have you here and you've done a ton of cinematography, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the design and cinematography in Westworld, especially in this episode, because we have that incredible scene where Maeve wakes up from her traumatic dream in the hospital or production facility. We're not really sure. It's it's sort of the
0: the heart of the oh, Westworld yeah. the facility. The ER guys, the ER guys who didn't put her in sleep mode. Is that what you Yeah, mean?
1: or or something. Yeah, and she wakes
0: up and the it's a
1: scene where she goes through all the different rooms where the robots are being repaired and hosed down and there's almost there's no dialogue. It's just all visual. And I, I wondered what you thought about that, how they how they filmed it, how they framed it, because it gives you such an incredible sense of of horror and foreboding looking at these bodies. And it has something to do with how it's lit and how we,
0: we see it. Yeah, the darkness, uh, the, the black and white theme is an obvious, enormous theme in this show. And you can see it from the opening credits sequence. It's all purely black and white. And um, I was really interested to read that they've used 35 millimeter film uh, rather than some digital format. It makes total sense. With 35 millimeter film, you get an incredible amount of control over the shadows. You can see, like, when you have a close up on her face when she wakes up from this dream in the darkness, you can see her pores. You can see a tiny bit of light on her face. You can see such incredible details. And what fascinated me, t- too, about the behind the scenes in past films and as, you know, the dystopian world, everything in the behind the scenes or the rich people, everything's been white and light and pristine and perfect in the rich people or the the futuristic world. or Like the, the train the station. Yeah, everything has been white. But in this, the behind the scenes, the controlling force is in the dark the walls are black the floor is black everything is in darkness there's something s- more sinister about the controllers in this version than there is about the robots themselves
1: and there's that incredible the design is sort of i said in my review that it's like an evil uh apple store because there's <laughs> so much glass and we see that scene where um mave uh tandy newton right before she basically collapses, she sees, um, Teddy and a bunch of the other robots just being thrown into this glass box and being sort of hosed down. And what, why is everything, why do you think everything is made of glass? I mean, it's obviously not very practical.
0: There's a certain amount of transparency, huh? Obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but Lack <they're>, of transparency. <laughs> yeah. So they think they're being transparent with themselves, with each other, but they're really living in this dark environment and, the darkness you know it doesn't go away the entire facility is dark and whether they have glass walls you still don't know what's going on inside there's sort of a physical barrier between them but it's not really clear I, yeah the pens, So there's an
1: irony that it's all that it's all transparent basically yeah
0: i think that yeah the darkness is always surrounding them and the transparency even though it looks like it's clear it's really not clear.
1: Some of the the shots that we have in this episode, there's one great moment where we're in the housing facility where the programmers and workers live and the camera peeks down and we just see this bizarre organic shape that's a bunch of escalators. Mm -hmm. And it kind of reminded me of either kind of like a film noir look or maybe a 1970s conspiracy film. Mm -hmm. Do you see any other cinematic flourishes like that that kind of call back to other other genres or
0: it's funny that it makes me a lot of this made me think of in the 1970s if you have a a really good spoof that means you're you've got a major theme throughout your decade and that's sleeper made me it made me think of sleeper a lot because of the the white worlds and the the bizarre environments that were being made fun of in Sleeper. Sleeper is a great example of a movie that's trying to make fun of
1: things like uh Logan's Run is a great example. Um,
0: you know, even two thousand one, some of the environments there. Soil and Green as well. Mm-hmm. I mean that had the dirty side but also the the pristine side was was, you know, cold and empty and big buildings and big malls. And- And let's
1: not forget um, George Lucas's uh, film THX 1138, which is also this sort of brutal mall environment. And so I think maybe Westworld is harking back to more of a 1960s feeling with Mm -hmm. the science fiction, because a lot of the titles we're mentioning are either kind of late 60s or maybe just on the cusp of being in the 70s. Well, I was thinking of 2001, which is really like Mm -hmm. at the very end of the 60s, um, I think it's 69. So, which has a lot of these same kind of gleaming white interiors with recessed buttons and, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and sort of, you know, people walking around under crest ads and things like that. We haven't actually seen any advertising in Westworld. That's kind of funny. It's a kind of a, a weird corporate environment with no advertising.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Well, they pay enough money. It's very strange contrast in that there are no ads in Westworld. But when you sign up, it's very expensive. I think my trip for yeah. four weeks was like $5.9 million or something like that for so a yeah, month. So
1: <laughs> you pay to have the ad ad-free experience. Yeah. Is
0: there anything else
1: about the design of the show or the cinematography that you think that audiences should be looking for?
0: I mean, it's the darkness that really fascinated me. Also, the the Western landscapes are like David Lean-esque, you know, the big Westerns yeah. of, of old. I think more than the cinematography, what strikes me is the audio, not just the music itself, but the, the audio. There's a lot of silence. And you haven't told anyone about our little talks? You told me not to. Step into analysis, please. There's an absence of sound in a lot of cases, which really fascinates me And, and adds to the creep factor. It's like you don't need creepy music in this to be creepy. You just need to take everything out. And I really love that sort of minimalist soundtrack that they have. Bernard has been talking to her and sort of guiding her, and she picks up a gun at the end. So is Bernard the one who's sort of leading her to this place because that's his voice that's telling her to wake up and walk outside and pick up a gun that's buried. It's true. We, I mean, this is an
1: interesting element of the sound in the episode too, actually, is that throughout the episode, we've been hearing Bernard saying things to Dolores like, do you remember this? Um, Can you remember? And of course we see him in the episode in this session with her, which is, it seems like a totally off the record debugging session. He keeps erasing it and telling her not to tell anyone about it. He's doing something with her. And at the end, when she comes out, we don't hear his voice, but we hear her say aloud right here. And then she bends down and picks up the gun. So she's hearing him in her head, presumably saying to go out there. And we don't, know where it's taking us, I think the guns are going to become a
0: much more uh, interesting theme. So do you think that gun is one that is not on the grid? Like, can that kill humans? Is is he giving her a gun that is not official? I hope so. Because some of those humans need to die. (laughs) Yeah. Do you remember? Like to protect herself against, you know, maybe the man in black, maybe they're trying to stop his progression to the maze somehow but one one thing that really struck me in her conversation with bernard behind the scenes was what that that thing about intentionally failing the turing test in that bernard asked her to delete something because she asked him if he's done something wrong yes and then he tells her to delete the conversation but did she did she delete that conversation or is she holding on to it is she lying (laughs) We don't
1: know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good question. And it's also, it goes into how these robots have such an interesting user interface because we see Elsie accessing their code using a much more conventional method. I mean, it looks like she's in a command line, but then Bernard only ever accesses them through voice commands. And he actually, we see him giving certain commands. He says, step into analysis mode, which I, I love that detail that there's this kind of essentially like a debugging mode. And he's kind of going through step by step. And then he takes her out of analysis mode back into this other kind of mode, which is, you know, back into her personality, I guess. And he doesn't have any guarantee that she's erasing anything because he's not looking at the command line. And he doesn't seem to have access to what the actual contents of her mind are. He has to just trust her. And I definitely think this is you know, it's heading somewhere very interesting. And I'm very curious to see where it goes. I mean, I I would be totally willing to believe that Bernard is either a robot sympathizer or is part robot himself and is telling Dolores to delete things knowing that she won't. All right. All right. Thanks. Cool. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. I'm your host, Annalee Newitz, and I'll be here every week obsessing over Westworld until the season is over. So be here next week and we'll talk some more.